Good morning, everybody. My name is Caroline Baum, and I'm delighted to be here this morning to kick off this fantastic event. I'd like to welcome you all as friends, sisters, and if there are any destroyers in the joint, a special welcome to you. We thought we would start today with some good news. So although technically uh, we've all turned the clocks back this morning, in fact, in this session, I think you'll find that we are turning the clock forward. Virginia Woolf longed for a room of her own, as you all know. But according to our first guest today, we don't just get the room, we get the whole house too. And it gets better. Men are going to marry or partner with older women. Women are going to be marrying or partnering with younger men. So, who is the optimist who is predicting all of this? Well, Liza Mundy is an award-winning staff writer for the Washington Post. She's also the author of a biography of Michelle Obama and of Everything Conceivable, a book about assisted reproduction. Her new book uses social, social science research to back up her almost utopian vision of women's economic rise. And I particularly like the scenarios that she paints based on interviews with women coming home from rewarding jobs to gourmet meals cooked by proudly domestic partners. <laughs> um, before we get any further, though, just a couple of housekeeping notes, appropriately, since we're talking about the domestic sphere. Um, you have, of course, all turned your phones off. Um, and at the end of uh, Liza's talk, there will be an opportunity for you to ask some questions. There are microphones positioned down here in the stalls and also up in the circle. And at the end of the session, Liza will be signing copies of her book, The Richer Sex, in the foyer. So, how will what uh, Liza Mundy calls the big flip affect us at work and at home? Well, here she is to tell us more. Please welcome Liza Mundy. I'm not sure I've ever been accused of being utopian before, but that's, that's fine. I'll, I'll take it. Um, it is really thrilling, I must say, to be here speaking in Sydney Opera House. I um, have a lot of opera fans in my family, particularly my mother and my aunt. And when I told them I would be speaking here, they were, they were thrilled as well. And my aunt suggested that perhaps I would like to sing. Um, because the only thing more thrilling than speaking in Sydney Opera House would be singing in Sydney Opera House. And I thought, well, of all the things that I'll inflict on you in the next hour, I won't inflict that on you. Um, so I was, I was actually having dinner last night after arriving from the United States with um, some of the wonderful women here who've organized this festival. And Anne Mossop, as it happened, had in her bag uh, a copy of Sheryl Sandberg's new book, Lean In. And she, she said, you know, I feel very schizophrenic reading your book at the same time that I'm reading Sheryl Sandberg's book. And I understood immediately what she meant because in my book, uh, I try to call out the ways in which women, um, in many ways are, are, are certainly doing better uh, than, they, than they have in the past in terms of academic achievement, in terms of professional success, and in terms of earnings, uh, and, and, any, and also ambition, any number of measures. And then in Sheryl Sandberg's book, which I assume that you know, some of you are reading and many of you will read, she's talking about the way in which we aren't quite yet where we'd like to be, and we, um, 
and we still have a ways to go, particularly in representation in Congress in the United States and representation in corporate America. Those are two, those are two areas in which women in particular have had um, more difficulty infiltrating the top echelons. And I think this is part of a really interesting debate that has uh, flared up, I'd say, in the United States in the past year, a really robust conversation in which... Um, some women writers and thinkers are saying, well, look at where we are. I mean, look at the fact that 60% of our university graduates in the United States, and this is true globally, are female, uh, in which young women in most American cities now are out-earning their, their partners, women without children, um, and, and all of these measures in which women are doing better. And then you have other voices saying, yes, but we're not there yet, and we need to think about what needs to happen in order for women to reach these, these, these um, exalted regions where they aren't yet. And you have people like Sheryl Sandberg saying, what needs to happen is that women need to work even harder than they already have. Women need to lean in. They need to be more ambitious. They need to raise their hands. They need to negotiate for salaries. And we have... Um, um, other other thinkers and writers like Amory Slaughter, who wrote a very uh, a very widely read piece for the Atlantic magazine, saying, "No, what needs to happen uh, is for institutions to change. It's not that women need to lean in; it's that women are leaning in and they're hitting their head against a lot of hard impediments. And the workplace needs to become more flexible, and we need more policies to help women rise. And so there has been a really robust conversation, you know, with a fair amount of argument. But I think that it's been an interesting and important conversation, recognizing that we are at a different place than we were 30 years ago. Uh, and we do need to have a new set of conversations. And we do need to recognize that young women in particular are achieving in a way that women weren't necessarily 30 years ago because of, of so many um, you know, battles that have been fought. And we need to think about what the stresses and challenges are now. So there's been this very robust conversation and a lot of things going viral. I mean, Sheryl Sandberg's TED Talk going viral, uh, Amory Slaughter's piece going viral. And in the midst of this robust conversation about women's achievement, how far we are, how far we aren't, um, every now and then there's a surprise. And a couple of weeks ago, there was a letter that was written to the campus newspaper um, in Princeton University, uh, which is one of our, our top universities. And it was written by a woman who graduated in 1976 and it was an open letter to undergraduates on campus in which she said, young women, you need to understand that you need to find a husband while you are at Princeton because, um, because it's very important for you smart women to marry a man who is as smart or smarter than you are. And this is going to be your only opportunity to be surrounded by young men who are worthy of you. And furthermore, you should be aware that your value as you go through your four years of university life is going to drop because when you come in as a first year, you're going to be surrounded by men that you can date all the way up to, to fourth years. But as the older you get, the more women are going to be coming through the pipeline. And so your value is going to drop. And, and so you need to be really nice to the guys in your first year class because at a certain point, those are going to be the only guys who are available to you. So... <laughs> One of the many things that this, that this letter introduced is the, is the fact that um, women now are going to go through life with uh, yet another college anxiety dream that they can have in which uh, you're going to have that anxiety dream, you know, where you're back at college and you realize, God, I completely forgot to meet my husband here. <laughs> so 
So that talk went, vi- that, that letter went viral. In fact, there were so many letters in response that it crashed the university's website. And in fact, you can still find it online, but when you go on the, uh, the campus newspaper uh, looking for the letter, you actually can't find the letter anymore. And, and as you can imagine, I mean, there, you know, there were morning talk shows talking about this. There were blogs. There was podcasting all about, you know, a flurry. But what's so interesting to me is that idea that if you're a woman and you, you know, you've achieved and you've, and you've, you've done well in school and you've, and you've got a job that you, that you want to be careful not to overmatch your partner. This fear of overmatching the person that you are partnered with. I think at the same time that it's, it's outdated and it's laughable and, 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 you know, people are, are having a very strong reaction against it. I think it's, it, it's, it still remains in, and it's one of the challenges that young women and men now are facing at a time when, um, when women are graduating from university at higher rates than men. And, and in the United States, and one of the things that I point out in my book, even though we still have a gender wage gap, even though women still make less than men do, it is increasingly the case that in their relationships, in their marriages, uh, the number of women who are out earning their partners it has been steadily rising since the late 1980s. The United States government tracks the percentage of wives who out earn their husbands. I'm not really sure why they do, but they do. And, um, and, and when you look at that chart, you can see that in the late 1980s, about 23% of working wives were out earning their husbands. That percentage now is almost 40%. It's been steadily rising over the past two and a half decades. Uh, it, it started really ticking up in about the year 2000, even before our economic recession. And then during the recession, which began in 2007, the, the, the percent, it started going up by about a percentage point every year as, as women stepped in to take the um, lead role in their households. So many, uh, so many more men lost jobs in our recession than women did. So we, we're at this very interesting point where women in their relationships are outmatching men, but they're still, I think, worried about it. And, and I, I, when, I was, when I was doing the research for my book, one of the most interesting experiences was, was to go back and, and read some of the literature and be reminded of how recent it is for women to have any economic any economic power in their households at all, and how hard society worked for hundreds and hundreds of years to make sure that women did not overmatch their husbands, particularly when it came to earnings, and um, or even be their equals. And one of the um, one of the one of the pieces that I enjoyed reading when I was doing my research was a, um, a letter, an editorial that was written in the New York Times, in, I'm sorry, in the London Times in 1868. Up until that time, women, when they got married, were not allowed to have any property in marriage. They were not allowed to keep their wages. They, uh, if they got married, they became essentially their husbands as, as a legal entity. And so there was a, there was a debate going on in England, and this was true in the United States as well, in many European countries, uh, a debate going on about whether married women should be able to own the right to their property. And, um, the London Times was dead set against this and was convinced that it would, uh, destroy marriage relations and that, and that marriage was the cornerstone of society, so it would destroy society as well. That it was crucially important for um, for marriage to be on a footing of authority on the one side and subordination on the other. And you can imagine who was the authority and who was subordinate. It was very important that the husband had the leadership in his household and that he had the property rights in the household. So the Times went on and on about what a disastrous thing it would be if women had property rights in marriage. And they wrote, you know, if a woman has the right to own her property and to keep to her use her own wages, what is to prevent her from going where she likes and doing what she pleases? 
And when I came upon that quote, actually, in an economics paper, I thought that it was 19th century irony. I thought maybe the editors of the Times were joking. So I went back and I read the whole thing, and it went on and on and on. But it was, it was very serious about the, the way in which marriage would suffer if women had any property rights at all, because why would they stay in a marriage then? Um, and, and, you know, <laughs> that really... I. Uh, that really did seem to be the, and the only thing worse for women to have as much, you know, to have any property rights would be for women to have greater resources than her husband. And they did note that at that point in England, if a woman came into a marriage with a lot of money, it was possible legally to sort of entail her estate so that she didn't have, um, she didn't have the, the use uh, of, uh, you know, disposing of it, but their husband couldn't necessarily um, piss it away either. And, and so they, they, they said that that is also undesirable in marriage because, um, because when a woman comes into marriage, marriage with more property than her husband, she is inclined to um, make a parade of her bounty or to complain that he is living upon her. So the idea was that if a woman had more earnings in her relationship, she would be unpleasant to live with. It's something that I think, you know, is a pervasive idea that women, if they overmatch their husbands, either academically or in terms of earnings, become become unpleasant, become strident or lord their power over men. And um, I have, you know, I have a number of chapters in my book looking at the ways in which once the Married Women's Property Act did pass, there was still plenty to prevent women from going where they liked and doing what they pleased. There were, there were, you know, throughout the 20th century, there were any number of measures in place to keep women's earnings at a lower rate than men's. I mean, we had in our country, we had uh, separate jobs for men and women. We had his and hers, one ads. We had, it was accepted that if a woman took a job that, you know, a man could have like being a tailor or any sort of job, she could be paid half what he was paid. We had laws that said that once you got married, you were no longer employable. That, uh, that for example, if you were a school teacher, once you got married, the school board would, would require you to no longer work. So we had any number of measures in place to ensure that women's earnings would be lower than their husband's that women would be dependent on men in marriage. So, um, so there is, you know, really centuries worth of this idea that women should not overmatch their partners. And so this letter that was written to the undergraduates at Princeton, I think, although it was highly controversial, did again sort of ring that bell of, you know, girls, be careful. You've, you know, you've just about, this is what she said, you've just about priced yourself out of the market. Um, you, you, so you, you don't want to graduate and go forth into the world where there are going to be all these sort of inferior guys and you need to, you need to worry about this now because you're not worried enough um, about the way your lives are going to unfold. So, so in my book, what I, I try to, I try to explore, you know, what, where that fear comes from and how it's playing out now in relationships. Because I think when you, when, it's important to examine this because when you look at Sheryl Sandberg's argument, and her argument is women aren't yet where we want them to be because they aren't leaning in hard enough. They aren't trying hard enough in the workplace. You have Anne-Marie Slaughter saying women aren't where they need to be because the workplace is too inflexible and unforgiving. But I think what I'm trying to do is explore the dynamics in households, the dynamics in relationships. You know, to what extent are women afraid of overmatching their partner? And, and how does that play out? both in their relationships and in the way that they, um, that they comport themselves professionally. So I did a lot of social science research, and we can talk about that. I interviewed a lot of, of women 
really of all ages and all demographics and, and men as well. And I saw some patterns that um, in this cohort, particularly of women who are under 30, who are out earning their, their, you know, their dating partners in most American cities, I talked to them about how that felt. And I did actually ask them, you know, would you, if you, if you want to get married, would you marry someone whose degree set is not as high as yours? Would you marry a guy who didn't go to college? Because that's, you know, a real question when you have a, a large group now of women who are college graduates, a smaller group of men who are college graduates. It's a real question. I mean, women would say to me, I was just talking about that last night at dinner with my friends, or we were talking about that in my, in my dorm room. I mean, it's a real question that women play out. And I found actually that women were very, were very leery of the idea of, of partnering with someone that they might overmatch. And, and, they, and women would say to me over and over again, you know, I need, to, I need to marry some guy or I need to date a guy. He needs to be on my level. So they were really, um, you know, they were really sort of obsessed with the idea that, that, that a guy needed to be, you know, driven and that they needed to have somebody to talk to, um, that, and that if, if someone didn't have, wasn't as educated as they were, that, that they, would, they wouldn't know what they would be able to talk about or that, or that they you know, would be with someone who wasn't as driven as, as they were. And, and so the, the strategies that women had adopted were really interesting to me. A lot of, I was surprised at the number of women who said, when I go out dating, when I go meet, meet somebody in bars, the number of women who would lie about what they do. Um, and again, I think out of this fear of overmatching, I interviewed a number of young women in Texas, uh, young Latina women who are... Um, a number of them were law school graduates and lawyers, and they were talking about going out to bars in San Antonio, Texas, and uh, and meeting guys. And they they went out a couple of nights, and they said whenever they met guys uh, and told them that they were lawyers, th they would find themselves in arguments. And the men would say, "Does this mean you don't want to have children? What are your political views?" And they got so tired of that that they started telling guys that they were cosmetologists. And so they would say, "Well, I do hair, and my friend does nails." And the conversation wouldn't go very far after that, and they could just dance and have a good time. So um, that, was, that was an interesting pattern. Uh, I, I talked to a woman who is a, um, a dean at a university in Texas, and she also found that when she would go out and meet men and they would say, what do you do? She would say, well, I work at the university. And they would say, well, are you a professor at the university? And she would say, no, I work in the admissions office. And she was the dean of admissions. She was the university vice president, the dean of admissions. And similarly, I talked to a young woman in Pittsburgh, a doctor, an OBGYN, and when she said that when she met guys and they asked her what she do, she would say, well, I work at the hospital taking care of patients. So she was, uh, you know, encouraging the idea that she was a nurse and not a doctor. And I was really surprised to see this pattern repeating itself because I do think, you know, letters like that one uh, that the woman, they, they do instill this fear, women, that either that you're going to be bored with somebody who's not on your level or or you're going to be unmarriageable because so many women have been told for so long that if you get too educated, if you're too successful, you're going to be unattractive. And so I think that many of the women I interviewed were afraid when they went out um, into the world that they would appear unattractive to men. And um, another coping mechanism that women adopted that I thought was really interesting was if they were in a city 
uh, like Miami, where there's a large pool of women who are more educated than men, they would fly to other cities. And I interviewed a young woman who was actually a university undergraduate, and she was already making $70,000 a year managing her university's social networking services, because apparently the grown-ups didn't know how to do it. And so she was already making a lot of money, and she was finding that there weren't any guys on her level. So she was, so she would fly to New York. She and her friends would go to Miami International airport. They had the money to do it. And they would fly up to this one particular hotel in Manhattan called the Ace Hotel that's very high tech and got a lot of, you know, guys who work in, um, you know, digital industries. And they, so they would, they were enlarging their dating and mating pool by literally flying and traveling. And actually, when I tell this to women in Manhattan, they think it's hilarious because women in Manhattan feel that there's a shortage of guys as well. So there's this kind of, there's this kind of musical chair game that's happening um, that I thought was really interesting. And I think, you know, other more, more serious, as I, as I talked to women who were in marriages, where they had found themselves in the position of becoming the breadwinner in their relationship, I, I found that, that for, for many women, this is not a situation that feminism has really prepared them for. I think many of us were sort of raised to think what I want in life is exact parity, exact equality. I want to, um, I want to, if I get married, I want to marry somebody who works the same number of hours I do. I want to get paid as much as he does. When we go home, I want to, um, you know, I want him to do the same amount of house, housework and childcare that I do. So we've had this vision of exact parity and exact equality, and it doesn't always work out that way. So I interviewed a young woman in, in the Bay Area in San Francisco who had gone to MIT, which is another uh, fine university in Boston, and she belonged to the Freedom from Gender Society. So she was very, very progressive, very, very feminist. And she found herself when she was, um, her husband graduated and was unable to find a job during the recession, and so she was the sole earner in their household, and she found that very intimidating, and she found it very stressful. She also found, as men have found over the years, that she was really ratcheting up her performance at work. She was working much harder because she felt the responsibility of of earning for two people. And her her husband, uh, as a result of being unemployed, was pitching in, and he was doing all the housework at home. He was doing all the cooking. He was doing all the cleaning. And then when he... when. Uh, when he got a job, but he wasn't making as much as she was, she found that when she came home, she was still sort of thinking, well, maybe he should be doing the cooking and cleaning. And she, she said to me, after all, he's better at it than I am. And I thought, well, that's ironic because, you know, for so many years, men would say at the end of the day, oh, you know, you should load the dishwasher because you're better at it than I am. And in fact, he had got, he was better at it than she was. But she was revisiting this notion that I think, you know, we've made the argument for so long that when men are the breadwinners, when they come home at the end of the day, you know, they don't, you don't get to sit in the easy chair. You, you don't get to not pitch in with the children. You need to help. You need to pitch in. And she was finding that, um, that at the end of a long, hard work day, she was revisiting this notion. And, uh, you know, she acknowledged that she wasn't doing 50% of the housework and she was starting to feel, you know, that maybe that was fair. And so it was interesting to see the way in which the deal that, that relationships consist of is getting revisited. She also acknowledged, and, and statistics bear this out, that when women are the lead earners in their households, they sometimes can be pr- proprietary about their earnings, that women 
aren't necessarily likely to think of themselves as a breadwinner and hand over their money to the household. So when she was working, her, um, her husband took their, one of their animals to the veterinarian and authorized a, an expensive procedure. And she said that when she got home, she said, I felt like he spent a lot of my money without consulting me. So she was still thinking of the money as her money. And, uh, and I think, um, this is, this is, this is another area in which women still haven't gotten their, their minds around the fact that they are increasingly going to be the lead earners in their households. Um, but I think on a more positive note, and I do ultimately try to, as you said, strike a positive and somewhat utopian note in, in my book, I think that as we look for ways in which women can really reach the top levels of of corporate, um, you know, corporate society or nonprofits or government or whatever realm of endeavor, that there is an opportunity now. And I made this case to the women that I that I interviewed. There's an opportunity for women who are graduating from university, who are meeting and partnering with guys who are, I think, more than ever willing to willing to invest in them. And I interviewed any number of women who said. Um, you know, my boyfriend has said that he will move for me. He'll move for my career. Uh, I interviewed a young woman in, in Atlanta who's a mechanical engineer, and she was in the PhD program there, and her boyfriend was in the PhD program also. But he was feeling, he had a difficult thesis advisor, and he was getting discouraged, and she had been doing really well, and I uh, had had some great summer internships, and her job prospects were looking very, very good. And he was he was aware of that, and he was saying to her, you know, maybe I'll just get my master's, maybe I'll drop out of the program, and, you know, I'll put my, uh, my support behind you, and if you get a job offer in San Francisco, I'll move for you, and maybe I'll figure out something else that I'm going to do. And she was really trying to wrap her head around the idea of having someone who would be so supportive that he would move for her career and pr privilege her career. And she said, you know, getting boxed in as the primary earner sounds to me like a lot more work and a lot less play. And I thought, well, yeah, I mean, welcome to the world that has been very familiar to men for a long, long time. Getting boxed in as a primary earner, of course it can be a lot of work and a lot of responsibility. And I think one of the hardest things, when I, when I interviewed women with children who were the lead earners in their households, one of the hardest things was sort of adjusting to the idea that they might be the distant person in their household. Um, I interviewed a woman who had taken a job because her husband had lost his job in the recession. She had been a stay-at-home mom. She had gone back to work full-time. And during the course of her year, the year, her husband was the uh, stay-at-home dad in their household, and her sons got more time with their father than they had ever had before, which she thought was wonderful. She teared up whenever she spoke to me about this, about how gratifying it was to her as a parent to see her sons getting to have time with their father they had never had time before. But during the course of that year, she said when her sons came home at the end of the year with all of their school artwork, she had been written completely out of the picture. And all of the artwork had her husband and her sons in, in the picture. And I think that is, that is hard for women to get used to, and that's probably you know, the hardest part about becoming the breadwinner. I also interviewed, uh, this was after my book came out, I was having uh, dinner with a bunch of women who actually are, are longtime breadwinners, um, own, owners of businesses and, and uh, really successful corporate women. And what they found really difficult was when their husbands, who were very competent with the children, would say to them, they, they, they talked about rushing home from their jobs in Manhattan to get home, uh, to be there before their children went to sleep. And their husband would say, you know, if you can't get home by seven, 
don't come home until nine because it is so disruptive for you to get home 15 minutes before the children are going to sleep. I've got them on the schedule. I've got it all down. So you either get home at seven or you wait. And so it was, it was hard for them to sort of, they understood it, they respected it, but it was sort of hard to get used to that kind of directive. So, um, but I, I, I saw what was so heartening for me was to see women who, who I think realize that, that there is a new opportunity now and, and they're, this idea that you've that you've got to marry somebody who went to your same college or who does exactly what you do i mean that can be that can be a recipe for disaster and it can be very hard and it's been one of the things that actually has driven women out of the workforce is is the demandingness of men's jobs certainly this is true in our country it is when they talk about women opting out one of the reasons women opt out is it becomes very very hard at some points for for both people to be charging forward um, at the same pace and I interviewed, for example, a young woman who's a law student in, in Vermont, and she came from a working-class family. She had always wanted to be a lawyer. She had always wanted to achieve. She saw how her mother had been economically disempowered in an unhappy marriage, and she did not want to have that uh, for herself. And that was true of so many young women that I interviewed. They did not want to go through what their mothers had gone through in divorce in terms of being economically disempowered. And so she was married now to her high school sweetheart, and he had taken a job um, to put her through law school. He was working as a carpenter to put her through law school. And I thought that is such an interesting example of the flip because it used to be the case that women, if they took jobs, uh, they took jobs to put their husband through law school or their husband through med school. And and this guy was making a calculation, you know, I'm going to... Uh, we're go- I'm going to invest in you, and you're going to be the lead earner in, your- in our household. And she understood that this was what was going to help her get ahead in life. And I- I- this happened so many times. Um, again, a-, a wonderful young couple, Hispanic couple in South Texas, where uh, where the woman had had. The, the husband had gotten no support from his family when he started college. Uh, he had to leave college in order to support an extended family. His parents had not given him any support academically. And this is true frequently of young men in the United States um, that they're not getting the sort of encouragement from their parents, actually, that girls are to go to school. And so he had fallen out of college. He married this wonderful woman who uh, works for her local congressman. She's got a PhD. She, she was working on her PhD program, and she actually talked him back in to going to school. And she would drive him to school, and she encouraged him to graduate, and he did graduate. And he was so admiring of her, and he was so... You know, they, had, they have a wonderful marriage. They, they just had a child. And he said, you know, when this baby's born, she wants to get her PhD. She's going to be working. So I need to be the lead, uh, you know, the lead bottle washer and, and, and sweeper and mopper. And I'm going to do it because he said, you know, I'm putting all my chips on her. And I thought, you know, that is that really is a it's a new opportunity for women that, that people have not said to them before. You know, I'm going to put all my chips on you, and I'm going to do everything I can to, to make your success feasible. And so I do hope that the women I interviewed and women who are in that position will appreciate that from male partners who are willing to put their chips on them. And, um, and if they do, I, I feel that that is one uh, that is one thing that needs to happen in households in order for women to reach the, um, you know, the, the summit, the height that, that we want to see women reach. Thank you.
Liza, thank you very much thank for you. a very stimulating and very inspiring and very thought-provoking talk. And now we're going to talk about cooking, right? <laughs> um, I'm going to turn this session over to you in a few moments, but I'm just going to kick off with a couple of questions to give you basically time, if you've got a question for Liza, to make your way to one of those four microphones, two downstairs, two upstairs. If you'd like to make your way to the microphones now, that will mean that we'll have time for more questions. And um, please um, confine yourself to a question rather than a statement. Um, Liza, I love that image that you um, offered up to us this morning of um, a kind of group of migratory birds from Miami sort of flying yeah. to New York yeah. for the season, right. Right. as it were. And also, of course, the very topical reference to um, Sheryl Sandberg's book. And the phrase that sticks in my mind from Sheryl Sandberg's book, apropos your quote from The Times, about the fear that men had that women would become unpleasant right. if they had their own money and their own property, is that she talks about the need for women in terms of succeeding in the boardroom to not only take a seat at the table, raise their hand for promotion, but to, to be, as she uses this phrase, relentlessly pleasant. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, th I, I, I think that's, um, I'm from the American South and that's always been sort of a Southern uh, kind of way of comporting yourself is the relentless pleasantness. Um, and I, yeah, I thought that that was, um, was telling and uh, I, I, I don't know her personally so I, <laughs> I don't know whether relentless pleasantness is, <laughs> something's gotten her as far as, um, as far as she's gotten, yeah. Let's talk for a moment about a woman that you have written about um, as, a, as a biography, Michelle Obama, who is a, a very respected and admired woman in America and around the world. And I wondered whether you could talk for a moment about her as an example of the kinds of ideas that you just put forward in, in your talk this morning. Yeah, she's really interesting because she was the breadwinner in her marriage early on. When Barack Obama was getting started in Chicago politics, he was teaching law. He was not making much money. He was, um, he was a member of the uh, state senate in Chicago, and so he was gone a lot. So she was in the unenviable position of be having primary care for their two young daughters and having a husband who was gone pretty much all the time, and yet she was the breadwinner and she was the earner. Hillary Clinton was also that person in, when her husband was getting started. And so <clears throat> these are women who have, um, who have adapted to their husband's careers uh, in terms of being the breadwinner when they're, when they're getting started. It, it's sort of the more old-fashioned investing in his career and, and getting him started. And then when his career, I mean, she's, she's also an example of women opting out when their husband's career becomes so all-consuming and so overwhelming that it becomes impossible at a certain point to maintain, um, to maintain a career. I mean, what's interesting about Michelle Obama, of course, the interesting thing about Michelle Obama is what she's going to do after, uh, after the second term is over and whether there will be kind of a slingshot marriage where, you know, there's a lot of speculation about whether she's going to go into politics. Well, uh, she's always said no, but of course right. there's also furious speculation right. about Hillary and, um, right. you know, you are eminently qualified to tell us. Do you think she will run? Yes. <laughs> well, there's some okay. good news for the morning. <laughs> That's great. Now, in, in the talk that you gave, you, you, you gave us a lot of very positive scenarios there, but you also in the book do deal, you really do address the kind of backlash. Yes. So would you talk, like to talk a little bit about the backlash? 
Absolutely. I mean, I have a whole, the whole middle section of the book is really about the backlash. I've talked about some of the ways in which women can have trouble adjusting to this situation because it's not what they expected. But I certainly interviewed women whose husbands were retaliatory against them or partners were retaliatory when they felt that the wife was, um, was, uh, was pulling ahead even a little bit. You know, if, if her salary was a little bit higher or she was ahead, particularly another young woman I interviewed in Texas, who, uh, I mean, not an, she was a social worker. She loved her job. Her husband came in a little bit after she did, and his salary level was always a little bit behind hers. Always, and 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 ultimately, um, there was a young trainee who was brought into the office, and he got to train the trainee, and he started spending a lot of time with the trainee. And uh, until one night, he didn't come home, and you know, she found him over the trainee's apartment, and they are now they are now divorced, although they still work in the same. Um, office and so sometimes they're still on good terms so he'll actually tell her what her shortcomings were as a wife and her shortcoming was that she was always one step ahead of him and and so I do think um you know I quote in my book it was Samuel Johnson who said about 200 years ago he said um men know that women are um men know that women overmatch them and that's why they choose the weakest and um least intelligent or something like that. And, uh, and it, it was, I think it was, it was a bit of a joke, but um, there are definitely uh, men who don't want to be overmatched. Mm. And, you know, there are definitely women that I interviewed who experienced partners who retaliated against them. But I think, again, not to, not to put too optimistic a spin on that, but the good news was what, what the Times was talking about, women could go where they like and do what they please. Well, economists now call that the independence effect. That when you have money and you have your own resources, you can get out of a relationship like that. You can get out of a marriage like that. And I did, you know, there are all sorts of things that can torpedo a relationship, and this is just one of them. And, and, and the women that I interviewed who had been in bad retaliatory relationships had gotten out of them. And um, as one woman I interviewed said, she was looking at her philandering husband, um, and she had just gotten a dog. And she thought, you know what? I'll keep the dog and get rid of you. <laughs> and she did. <laughs>